I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles out and turn to the Gospel of John. This is the 54th sermon, if you're keeping track. Sermon number 54 in our series through John's Gospel. As I have it mapped out, we've got about 29 left, and that'll take us all the way to Christmas. As we turn now to chapter 13, we are turning to a scene where the shadow and the darkness of the cross looms large. This is Thursday of Holy Week. This is in the upper room where the Last Supper is instituted, where Jesus instructs his disciples. This is Thursday. Within 24 hours of this event we're going to study today, Jesus would be hanging on a cross, and by that sundown, he would be dead. This is where we are. It's just a day before Good Friday. Now, Jesus is fully aware of what is about to transpire. He knows what is ahead for him. Why? Because he chose what is ahead for him. A few weeks ago, we saw in the previous chapter that Jesus fully embraced the cross. He fully embraced what was to come. And he experienced the emotional distress of that cross. The Bible says in John 12, 27, now is my soul troubled, deeply distressed. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. The cross would be the apex of Jesus' ministry. The cross that he would bear the very next day is the culmination of all that he's done and the reason he's come. Now, last week we saw at the conclusion of chapter 12 that Jesus concluded his public ministry to the crowds. He preached his final message to those who were out there. He gave his final appeal to come and believe. And then the patience of the Lord has run out. He cut off the opportunity for unbelieving Israel to believe. And now he turns his attention, he turns his focus inward to the disciples, to those whom he loves, to those who are closest, closest to him. He turns intently to his, the 12. Chapters 13 through 17 that we're beginning to look at today is known as the upper room discourse. Because these five chapters that John records tell us much of what happened in the exchange of that last supper as they celebrated the Passover meal together. It's been called by some as the holiest section of all Scripture because of what transpires. And as such, chapter 17, which contains Christ's high priestly prayer to the Father for us, some have called that the holy of holies of this section. So by any accounts, uh, over the next several months, it's going to take us several months to go through these five chapters, we will be walking on holy ground. We will be trekking through some of the most sacred spaces in the Bible. And as we do, we will consider the Lord's instructions to the 12 and his instructions by extension to we who believe in him, who proclaim Christ is mine forevermore. He will give instruction about the importance of humble service in the body. He will give instruction about what genuine love looks like, authentic 
real love. He will give instruction about the function and the work and the nature of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He will give instruction about the results of us being connected to him. He's the vine, we're the branches, and how that life flows. And he will give instruction on the need for us to experience unity as his followers. But he begins this whole section of the upper room discourse, this holy of holies of scripture, by giving a fantastic demonstration of love. A fantastic demonstration of selfless humility as he takes up what's been referred to as the ministry of the towel, taking the form of a menial servant, a degrading task of washing these other men's dirty, stinky feet. In so doing, he demonstrates what John declares in verse 1 of our focal passage, that he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. And if we know anything about John, who's sometimes referred to as the apostle of love, he begins this very long section of the upper room discourse focused on the narrative that really portrays the depth and the breadth and the height of the love of Jesus. So let's read our focal passage this morning as we consider how he loved his disciples to the end. This is the word of the Lord. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus loves them. And John says in verse one, he loved them 
to the end. If you grew up in church, I would probably be pretty safe in assuming the very first song you learned in church was what? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We've sung that truth countless times. We've read about that truth. We've had that truth taught to us through Sunday school teachers, through pastors, through parents. We know this, and we've had it reaffirmed to our hearts again and again. But even with all of that training and knowledge and insight, I would contend this morning that we haven't scratched the surface of the amount of love Jesus has for us. We can't begin to fathom, according to Paul in Ephesians 3.18, the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. I've been a Christian for 40 years. I've been studying the Bible full-time for 30 years. And I confess to you, after studying this passage, I've not begun to scratch the surface of Jesus' love for me. He loved them to the end. But this passage does help us to scratch the surface a little bit more. It helps to understand a little bit more of the depth of the love of Jesus for his own. In fact, there are four things about the divine love of Christ I want us to consider from our text today. The first one is this. Number one, I want us to think about the distance of divine love. The distance. We get a glimpse of just how far the love of Jesus goes. Notice verse one again. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. Let me start right there. We, we have understood this concept of hours. We've seen it many times throughout John's gospel. The hour is not referring to a literal interval of 60 minutes. It's pointing to an event. It's pointing to a time. It's pointing to a moment, a point when Jesus would die on the cross. And Jesus, having known the hour is coming, again, like I said earlier, the shadow of the cross is looming larger and darker here on Thursday as he's going to be hanging there the very next day. What would you do? What would you do if you knew that tomorrow you were going to die? How would you respond? How would you live the last 24 hours of your life? Some of us would be in this pool of sadness and we would have a pity party, if you will. Our hearts would turn inward to pity and remorse. Some of you likely would not be pity, but party. <laughs> I got 24 hours left. Okay, let's go. Let's do whatever I need to do. I've got a whole list of things on my bucket list that I want to scratch off before it's all over. Jesus, knowing his hour had come, knowing he's going to be dead in 24 hours, what does he do? He says, he comes and he loves them. He knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world. And from that knowledge, he concludes, I need to show love. I need to love those people who are closest to me. And again, his love is directed. It's a directed love. He loved his own. The love expressed here in John 13 is not universal love. The love expressed here in John 13 is not John 3.16 love, for God so loved the world, and that's true. This is different. 
He loved his own. He loved his disciples. This is a unique kind of love. I, as your pastor, I love everyone in this church. I can honestly say that. I love every single one of you. But there are some people in this church I love more than others. It's true. You say, you shouldn't show favoritism like that. I'm sorry. I, I do. There are some people in this church that I love more than others. In fact, there's 12 of them, just like Jesus had 12. I can tell you who they are. Amy, Aubrey, Casey, Ashley, Clay, Trent, Amber, Trevor, Carson, Nora, Demi, and Aiden. Sorry, but I love them more than I love you. I have a deep covenantal affection for them. That is different. Jesus having loved his own. Friends, this is different than John 3.16 love. This is covenantal, affection, relational, deep love. And if you're a child of God, Jesus loves you like that. Intense, directed love. And for these five chapters of the upper room discourse, he is going to pour out his love for them in a very unique way. And part of what is informing that directed love is the fact that they are, quote, in this world. And he's called them out of this world. Jesus knows, I'm going to endure the pain of crucifixion. But the book of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And that joy is all kinds of things. But he knew the cross wasn't the end. He knew 40 days from this upper room discourse, he's going to ascend back to the Father, back to the glory, back to the prominence and the position he enjoyed before the incarnation. He knows this isn't the end. But even knowing that, he still has a demonstration, and from that knowledge, he has a demonstration of love for them in a very palatable way. How much did he love them? Again, the text says he loved them to the end. To the end. That's the distance of divine love. Now, what does this phrase mean? It really could have two meanings, and I think John probably intends both. One meaning, he loved them to the end, means he loved them to the end of his life. The next day when he died, he was going to love them all the way to the end. But this word also, in, telos in Greek, can also mean to the uttermost, to the full extent, to the extreme. As far as love can go, that's how far Jesus loved them. He loved them to the end. And of course, that love is ultimately displayed in his substitutionary death on the cross. Having loved his own, he loved them in the world. He loved them to the end. This is one of the most glorious realities in Scripture. You know, unfortunately, today, nearly 50% of all marriages do not conclude the vows that were made at the beginning till death do us part. They end before they get to that point. Unfortunately, your friends from high school who signed your yearbook, BFF, what does BFF stand for? Best friends forever, and you never talk to them, right? Well, forever the next six months. 
You may get a Christmas card from them. You look at them. Hey, they, we don't look so bad compared to them. They look pretty, pretty awful. That's what you do with Christmas cards. You gauge your aging against your classmates. I'm only kidding. So best friends forever, till death to us part. Unfortunately, those things don't always mean that. How far did Jesus love his disciples? He loved them to the end, to the full extent. That's the distance of divine love. Here's the second thing I want us to notice. Number two, the display of divine love. I want you to see the juxtaposition that John creates between what Jesus knows and what Jesus does. John tells us Jesus knows some things. We saw already he, know that he knows that his hour has come, that death is right around the corner. But then in verse 3, look what else Jesus knows. Verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand. That's quite a bit of knowledge. He knows that God the Father has given him authority and ownership of everything. What is everything? The universe. He has all things. What else does Jesus know? He knows that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. He knew all authority was his. He knew he was returning to the Father. He knew he was going back to the realms of glory from which he came. And what does he do with that knowledge? What does, he, what does that information inform in him? Well, it's from that knowledge he determines to demonstrate even greater condescension. I mean, he's already condescended. He's already humbled himself simply by becoming a human being. That's quite a bit of condescension. But now he's going to even show greater humility, if ever, outside the cross. We can see Philippians 2 demonstrated. It's here. Notice Philippians 2. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by what? Taking the form of a servant. And that's exactly what he's doing here. He takes the form of a servant, and not just any servant, the lowest and the most menial of servant. That's who typically had the job of washing people's dirty feet. The lowest servant, if you will, on the totem pole. Jesus took that position. Several weeks ago, when we looked at the beginning of chapter 12, and we considered how Mary, uh, the sister of Lazarus, anointed Jesus with the very expensive perfume, and the text says she wiped his feet with her hair. I talked to you about how that Leonardo da Vinci painting of the Last Supper is not a genuine depiction of what it looked like. They weren't sitting up at a raised table, everybody facing the camera, make sure you got a good shot of my right side. It was, that's not how it was. They were all at a very low table. They were lying on the ground, maybe leaning on a cushion, and they would be eating with one hand, and they're all kind of fanned around this table. And this is the same setup here for this Last Supper. They're just reclining at the table. I want you to think about it. When we uh, eat, right? I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, it was rare that I came to the table with a shirt on, much less shoes on. That's just the way it was in the Walliser home. All of us boys, we rarely wore shirts. Uh, today, you can't come to our table unless you have a shirt on, right, Trent? You've got to be shirted up, Amy will say. Um, they likely had shirts on, but they didn't have shoes on. Now, when we eat today, our feet are about four feet. I measured with a tape measure today. Our feet are about four feet from our nose. Their feet 
lying on the ground, where are their feet in conjunction to their nose? They're basically the same level. You got 13 men reclining around a table, all of their feet at the same level of your nose. What do you think that smelled like? Wonderful, I'm sure. No, it's very pungent. Everybody knows, man, these boys need their feet washed. But nobody wanted to do it. Nobody volunteered. Hey, I'll do it. And so here they are enjoying this meal, chattering about. In fact, what were they chatting about around the table? What was the topic of their discussion? Luke tells us in Luke chapter 22 exactly what they were talking about. Look at it. A dispute also arose among them. This is during the Last Supper as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So while these disciples are talking about who's got the most talent, who's got the greatest gift, who on their little outreach excursions had the most success, they're talking about who's the greatest. Jesus, very unassumingly, probably not even being noticed, gets up from the table, he takes off his shirt, he takes up a towel, he gets a basin and fills it with water, and as they're discussing among themselves who's the best, who's the brightest, who's got the greatest gifts and talents, he starts washing their nasty feet. This is the picture of what's happening. Can you imagine, as they're comparing each other and their respective gifts, who's the greatest? He shows this ultimate act of service. But, but that's how all of us can be, isn't it? We want to be seen. We want to be heard. We want to be noticed. We want to get our due. We think we've earned the right to be heard. We want to be respected. The very first church I had the great honor of serving full-time in ministry was First Baptist Church, Quitman, Georgia. First Baptist Church, as you can see, there is a, a very traditional First Baptist Church at a county seat, South Georgia City. And I was called there to serve as minister of youth, education, and activities, which means I did everything that the pastor didn't want to do. Everything could be called an activity. So um, after I went there, I was 26 years old, and uh, after getting that full-time position, I, I went to our home church in Florida and was, was ordained into ministry. I was now a reverend, clergy, the right reverend, Troy Walliser, 26 years old. And so I go back there, and a few months later, our pastor uh, resigned, retired, and we did not have a pastor. There was only one reverend on campus. That was me. Now, we had a parking space. It's just to the left of that building that had a sign in front of it that said, clergy parking. And that's where our pastor parked every Sunday. Guess what I did the Sunday after he left? Well, I'm clergy. Of course, I went and parked in the clergy parking. What a jerk. Now I try to park as far away as I can, but in my immaturity, I wanted everybody to know I am an ordained reverend. We try to stand up for what our rights are. We want people to know our status, our position. Look at verse 6. Jesus comes to Peter, and he's going one by one around the table, and Peter once again opens his mouth and inserts his dirty foot. It's almost as if Peter thinks, okay, 
I'm watching him wash these other guys' feet. This must be a pop quiz or something, and I'm going to get it right. Nope, you are never going to wash my feet. Lord, do you wash my feet? The Greek is actually more emphatic even than our translation. It has the two pronouns uh, beside each other. You, me, feet, wash. Remember, Peter was the one to whom uh, he had declared all authority in heaven and earth is yours. Who are we to go to, Lord? You, you have the words of life. Peter's the one who's already made the pronouncement. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it was unthinkable for the Lord of glory to wash his stinky feet. Look at the way Jesus responds to his objection in verse 7. Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Now, what does that mean? Peter, this washing of your feet, it's pointing to something bigger. Me washing your dirty feet, it is symbolizing something greater. You don't understand it now, but you'll understand it better by and by. That you'll understand later. And that really leads to the third thing I want us to see about Jesus' divine love, and that is the depth of divine love. I want you to remember that this is in John's gospel. The other three gospel accounts don't record the washing of the disciples' feet. Only John does. But John is also the one who has this incredibly elevated Christology, right? How does the gospel of John begin? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's how John starts his gospel, this elevated view of Jesus. And all through John's gospel, he continues to bring us to that truth. He's the one that records the seven I am statements of Jesus, pronouncing his deity. He's the one that records Jesus in chapter 8, saying to the children of Abraham, uh, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him. This is the same Jesus. And here in John's gospel, with this elevated Christology about the nature of who Jesus really is, he also records Jesus washing dirty feet. Remember, it's John who has done this. What is this all about? Well, again, he says to Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no share of me. And then what did Peter say? Well, then wash everything. <laughs> wash me head to toe. He's always a man of extremes, Peter is. And that's where we get to verse 10, which is a bit of a difficult verse. I'm going to attempt to explain it. But look at verse 10 again. Jesus said to him, to Peter, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. What is this talking about? I believe what the Lord is in, intending here is this concept of bathing is the concept of being converted to Christ. Your ultimate cleaning, you being sanctified, set apart, washed, the regeneration of renewal by the Holy Spirit, according to Titus 3.5. So there is this conversion that ha takes place where at that moment you are declared completely clean. You're clean before God. But the repeated washing of feet, I believe, refers to the regular daily, um, hourly confession of sin. He, and that, look at it like this. 
This is, according to verse 1, the Feast of Passover. This was the highest and holiest of Jewish feasts they would share together. A great symbolism in the feast and the Seder meal that they would eat together. And so as such, it was a pretty formal event where you would bathe before you went to dinner. You'd put on your best clothes. You'd comb your hair. You'd put on a little cologne or perfume maybe. And then, like if we were to go to a really nice dinner, once we got all decked out and dressed and cleaned up and prepared, we would go walk out to our concrete garage and climb in our car, drive to the venue, uh, have a valet park our car, and we walk into the venue. When they got ready to come to this nice dinner, what did they do? They walked a mile or so across the muddy, mucky, manure-laden, dirty roads. They're clean, but their feet are nasty, right? See? And so the point is, we're totally clean, but what happens when we walk in this world? Do we get dirty? Sure. Do we pick up some of the pollution in this world? Of course we do. And we need the regular washing of forgiveness. Peter bathed before this feast and celebration, but his feet got dirty. Now, this is exactly what John taught in 1 John 1, 9. We're familiar with that. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us. This is ongoing confession. But I want you to notice how that 1 John 1, 9 is sandwiched in verse 8 and verse 10. Look at it with me. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. In other words, if you say that your regular walking in this world does not give you dirty feet, John says you're a liar. They stink. I can tell they're getting dirty. The pollutants of this world are attaching themselves to you. And what do we need? We need 1 John 1, 9. Confess it and be cleansed. I think this is what Jesus is pointing to here. But the question is, what makes this possible? What makes it possible to be once and for all cleansed, but also possible to be daily cleaned from the pollutants that attach to us? Well, this act of humiliation that Jesus does here in the washing of his feet, it is pointing to an even deeper humiliation that will occur in the next 24 hours. The unfathomable depth of service Jesus will endure when he dies on the cross for our sins. Like this is exactly what Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And what is the ultimate act of service? To give his life as a ransom for many. In fact, if we follow the sequence of events that John recalls here in chapter 13 of Jesus' ministry of the towel, taking up the towel in the water basin and washing dirty feet, we can see that they actually closely correspond the work of salvation that Christ has accomplished. Look at this next slide with me. First of all, Jesus, John tells us, rose from supper. This corresponds with the fact that Jesus, in eternity past, at a pointed time, rose from the throne of heaven. He laid aside his outer garments. 
Jesus laid aside his rights as God. And that's what Paul meant. Is he was in the form of God, but didn't count equality with God a thing to be held on to. He laid that aside. John says he took a towel and tied it around his waist. What did Jesus do? He took on human flesh so that he can serve. Next, Jesus poured out water into a basin. For what purpose? For washing. And friends, Jesus poured out his blood for our ultimate cleansing. And when he had washed their feet and put his outer garments back on and he resumed his place where he was before, guess what's going to happen? He completed the work of washing. He rose from the dead. He took back on the robes of glory and he resumed the place on the throne of heaven. This is what we see pictured here in the washing of the disciples' feet. And this is why Jesus responded to Peter the way he did. If you're not going to allow me, Peter, to wash your feet in this partial humiliation, you will never allow me to cleanse you in my complete humiliation when I die on the cross. Friends, unless Jesus cleanses us with the washing of his shed blood for our sins, we can have no part of any salvation in him. That's the depth of divine love. But that leads forth and finally to this final aspect of divine love, and that is the directive of divine love. This is what takes place in the last six verses of our focal passage. But particularly at verse 14, Jesus says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And let me tell you what this is not. This is not a directive from the Lord for some kind of third ordinance or third sacrament. We recognize two sacraments or, th- or two ordinances that Christ has commanded us to observe. One is baptism. The other is communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. Those are the two ordinances Jesus has established. Some interpret this as saying, well, this is a third ordinance that we should practice, that we should regularly wash one another's feet. Aren't you thankful we don't interpret it that way? And the reason we say this is not a third ordinance that Jesus was initiating here is because he doesn't say, I want you to do what I have done. He says, I want you to do as I have done. Humble yourself. In fact, I would say some of the things he calls us to in serving are a lot more servile than washing people's feet. He's called us to adopt this mindset and this practice of serving others. This is the call for every Christian to lower yourself, to humble yourself, to take up the ministry of service, even a degrading service, as Christ has done, to give away your position, to give away your claims, to give away your rights. I told you before, I pray over my children now child. Only Trevor joins me with our morning devotional. All the other children have moved out. But I pray regularly for myself, for Amy, for Trevor, for my children as they were growing up at that family devotional every morning. Lord, today, empower us by your spirit to give our rights away. There are rights we have that we could claim, but Lord, move us to give those away. A few years ago, I had someone come to me and say, Preacher, I'm tired of hearing you preach that we should give our rights away. 
You ought to be preaching, stand up for your rights. I said, okay, I'll do that as soon as I quit preaching Jesus. Because what is the model of Jesus? Give away your rights. Oh, you've got rights. But lay them to the side for the service of others, to wash one another's feet. Instead of a proud, critical spirit, people who wash one another's feet in humility are always eager to point out what God has done, seeking to cover one another's faults, to strengthen one another's weaknesses, to comfort one another in times of suffering, to provide for one another's needs. That's a one another that Jesus says here, wash one another's feet. In Galatians chapter 6, the, the Apostle Paul describes for the church in Galatia what the healthy body life of a New Testament church should look like, what it should be like. It's in chapter 6, verse 1, that he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? It's the law of love. We're going to look at it in two weeks, Lord willing. I give you a new commandment, love one another. He says there in chapter 6 of Galatians that we are to humbly correct one another in a spirit of gentleness for those who are encumbered by temptation. He tells the church healthy body life is that we share all good things together. He says healthy body life is where we don't grow weary in well-doing for one another. And then he kind of concludes and summarizes healthy body life in a local New Testament church like this. Look at Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. What's the point? It's exactly what Jesus said. He didn't tell us to wash everyone's feet, though we certainly do serve our neighbors humbly and sacrificially. He's speaking to the 12. These are those who are in covenant relationship, and he says, you all wash one another's feet. And Paul says, you look out for the needs of everyone, but especially the household of faith. Friends, there ought to be something unique about the way Lookout Valley Baptist Church relates to each other, the way we love each other, the way we serve each other. And Jesus concludes this section in John 13 by telling us that when we grasp this mindset of humble service, of putting others before ourselves, notice that is the key to genuine happiness and fulfillment. Look at verse 17 one more time. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That's the same word that's used in the Beatitudes. Uh, how blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for righteousness and all those Beatitudes Jesus spoke there. This is the same word. It means to be satisfied, to be fulfilled, to be happy. Jesus said, you want true fulfillment? You want true satisfaction? You want true happiness? Set aside your rights and serve others. I'll close with this. Claudius Ptolemy was a second century Roman mathematician and astronomer, a brilliant, brilliant scientist. Long before we ever had modern telescopes or satellites that circled our planet sending images back, um, Ptolemy had developed a system of astronomy that was quite advanced, had very um, advanced calculations and mathematical equations 
to predict the exact time of the rising and the setting of the sun every day. He could predict with accuracy lunar um, and, and solar eclipses. He could predict the phases of the moon. He could predict, to some extent, even the positions of the planets. Ptolemy's work was the, the operating system, if you will, for astronomy for some 1,300 years until the time of Copernicus. But even though his theories and his equations were fantastic, the system broke down because he had one fatal flaw. He assumed that our solar system revolved around the Earth, that the Earth was the center of our solar system. And so even though he got a lot of things right, eventually he got a lot of things wrong because of that flawed assumption. Until you get to Copernicus, and then they begin to discover, no, the sun doesn't revolve around the earth, but what? The earth revolves around the sun. The Ptolemaic system eventually broke down. And friends, I believe there's a close parallel in our lives in spiritual terms. Those who make themselves the center of their universe, those who think everything revolves around me, Oh, they'll experience some successes. They'll, they will, in the world's eyes, be profitable. They'll get some things right. They'll accomplish some objectives and achieve some specific results. But in spite of this apparent success, there will be one fatal flaw. Dissatisfied. Not happy. Unfulfilled. You see, because when you make yourself the center of your universe, that's ultimately where it ends. But when you make the sun, S-O-N, the center of your orbit, that's when true happiness, true fulfillment, and true satisfaction is found. And we follow his humble example of laying aside our rights and serving others. Look one more time at verse 14 as we close. Jesus said, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He reminds the 12, I'm the Lord. <laughs> I am your teacher, and I've washed your feet. As Jesus becomes the center of our universe, only can these realities be realized. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. And if Jesus took up the ministry of the towel to serve and to save, then friends, we ought to as well. And that leads to my last thought. As the Lord gave up his rights to save us, we are called to do the same, to serve others.